So please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This is the so-called Great Commission, which is in some sense a parallel passage to the passage that we consider this morning in, in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts. Well, please turn your, your order of worship to the, the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together our Christian faith using the words of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26, which consists of question and answers 69 through 71. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 69 asks, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. That is, all my sins. Question 70 asks, What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ, so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Question 71 asks, Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Well, boys and girls, uh, which section of the catechism are we currently in? Yes, grace, and within this grace section, I have noted how faith functions prominently as a structuring device, and so what is the definition of faith? Annabelle? 
What was the content of faith? Noel? Apostles' Creed. All right. Very good. And uh, what, what's, what's the benefit of faith? What happens when we profess this true faith? Annabelle? Righteousness. Yes. Christ's righteousness. That when we profess true faith, we are righteous in Christ and heirs of everlasting life. Now, where does this faith come from? Where does faith come from? It's a gift from God. And what instruments does God use to, to give us this gift? Annabelle? The word, yes, the preaching of the Holy Gospel. And this faith then is confirmed or nourished, furthermore, by the sacraments, which leads us then to our consideration of, of the sacraments. So again, notice how, how faith has been utilized as a, as, a, as a theme throughout the catechism. What is faith? What is the content of faith? Uh, what is the benefit of faith? Where does faith come from? Which leads us to the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel, and now the sacraments, which are going to devote our time for the next number of weeks. Now, last time we were together, two, or two weeks ago, I mentioned that before we can consider the individual sacraments in particular, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we first need to consider our theology of the sacraments in general. And I use the illustration of a playing field. The sacraments are a playing field. And when you go to a sports game, you go to that sports game and you sort of forget about yourself. The purpose of going is to enjoy the talent, hard work of these athletes. And when you leave the game, you're generally not talking about yourself and your own athleticism. You're talking about uh, the athleticism of these athletes and the, the teams that you have just witnessed compete against each other. So if the sacraments are, are, are playing field, who's on the playing field when the sacraments are administered? Is God on the playing field or are we on the playing field? And I made the argument that the sacraments are God's playing field to demonstrate his covenantal faithfulness and love towards us as his people. Meaning when we witness the sacraments, when we witness a baptism, when we partake of the supper, we should not leave and, and, and say to ourselves, oh, how, how righteous we are as a people. We should be talking about how good God is to us by serving us in this way, by giving us physical and visible signs and seals to assure us of our faith. And we get this understanding of the sacraments, particularly from Romans 4.11. Uh, just to review again, Romans 4.11, we read, God, uh, Paul is speaking of Abraham. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So notice that Paul is saying that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal. And circumcision functioned as a sign and seal, not of his personal faith, but of this righteousness that he was given. Whose righteousness? Well, Christ's righteousness, given to him ahead of time. So for Abraham, circumcision was not primarily a sign and seal of his personal faith. It was a sign and seal of the gospel. And yes, he was called to respond to this gospel by faith. But circumcision was a sign and seal of the gospel. And so this is why we say that the sacraments in general, in particular, particularly a baptism, is a sign and seal not of our individual faith, but it's a sign and seal of the gospel. The gospel that we're called to respond to by faith, but it's a sign and seal of the gospel. And this is very, uh, 
I think counterintuitive in our own Christian culture, many, many individuals, many, many evangelicals think of baptism as a sign and seal of their personal faith. And if you're thinking about baptism as a sign and seal of your personal faith, then infant baptism will never make sense. But if you recognize that baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel promise, then you are prepped to be able to understand why we administer baptism to the children of believers, even infants. Now notice that in, our, in the catechism's consideration of baptism, uh, uh, of the sacrament, baptism is considered first and then the Lord's Supper. Any ideas why the authors of the catechism decided to first consider baptism before the Lord's Supper? Okay. Chronology of, of, of Christ's life. Anything else? Very good, yes. So, of course, there's a lot of, a lot of unity between the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but there also are, are things that are unique to each. And baptism is a sign and seal of our initiation into the covenant community, while the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of, of our confirmation in the covenant. So this is why we baptize babies, but we don't give the Lord's Supper to babies. Because we recognize these unique elements, uh, the unique elements of these two sacraments. Baptism is a sign and seal of initiation into the covenant, and we see that throughout Scripture. God tells Abraham, I'm a God to you and to your children for an everlasting, for an everlasting covenant. Uh, Jesus blesses the little children in the Gospels and says, for such is the kingdom of God, or for such belongs the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, the promise is to you and to your children. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, children of believers are holy. Paul speaks to children in his epistles and treats them as much as part of the congregation as wives, as husbands, as parents, as slaves, and as masters. So we see throughout Scripture that children are members of the covenant. However, uh, there are two ways to relate to the covenant. You can relate to the external administration of the covenant, and then you can relate to the substance of the covenant. And baptism is that recognition of someone's um, participation, the external administration of the covenant, while the Lord's Supper is signifying and sealing one's participation in the substance of the covenant by way of profession of faith. And so baptism and Lord's Supper uh, function in slightly different ways as baptism is a sign of initiation, while the Lord's Supper is a sign of maturation and confirmation within uh, within the covenant. Now, I'd like to give you an illustration that will guide us through our, our consideration this Lord's Day. And I, I, so I, I briefly mentioned a similar illustration two weeks ago. But let's say you're on a road trip to a major city, and you are nearing the city, and you come across a road sign, and the road sign says, 10 miles to Chicago. Let's say you're going to Chicago. Now, at the bottom of this road sign, you see the seal of the city's official corporate insignia, which tells you that the sign wasn't put up by some hooligan trying to confuse travelers. This was a sign put up by the city, meaning you can trust it. You are really 10 miles away from the city. So keep that illustration in mind as we now uh, 
walk through the, these question and answers. So question and answer 69 is, exa is essentially examining the sign, that road sign. If you think about that illustration, question and answer 69 is a consideration of, of the road sign. And the seal that exists on, on that sign, the, the, the city's official insignia. Now, you'll notice that question answer 69 states that Christ instituted this outward washing with water. Now, where in Scripture did Christ institute baptism? Matthew 28, very good, yes. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which we read twice. Um, <laughs> this is where Christ officially institutes baptism, which is one of the reasons why we, we uh, celebrate as a sacrament. Sacraments are those, those practices in the, in the church that, that God or Christ has, has, has uh, personally instituted and given to us to celebrate during this, this time between the two advents of our Lord. Now, in the Great Commission, there's one central imperative, and you may have, have heard this before, but there's one central imperative, and the imperative is to make disciples. And then there are three participles in the original language that explicate what it means to make disciples. You make disciples by going. You make disciples by teaching. You make disciples by baptizing. Now, notice the close connection that Jesus posits between baptism and teaching. Baptism is a, the, a visible word, meaning it, it portrays visibly and physically what we hear in the word. But it's also striking to, to consider how, of all the things that Jesus could, could ordain for the church, of all the instruments, of all the tools that Christ could give the church in order to build the kingdom, in order to for, uh, form disciples, he gives them baptism. Basically, the word and, and the sacrament. So this shows us that whatever we think about baptism, it's important. Christ thinks that baptism is important. And it's important in the formation of disciples. Meaning, it's not just significant one day in our life when we're actually baptized. But our baptism has ongoing significance throughout our entire life as we are called to remember this sign and seal and its significance to us in our Christian life. Now, you'll notice in question answer 69, this language of remind and assure. Remind and assure. You could substitute those two words and say signify and seal. They're referring to the same, the same concept. Remind and assure, signify and seal. What question 69 is, is saying is that baptism is a sign and seal of, of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us personally in his sacrifice on the cross. It's a sign and a seal. Meaning, if, if we think of that illustration again, that road sign says Chicago 10 miles, if we think about the sacraments as a road sign, on that sign we have portrayed visibly the gospel. Furthermore, furthermore baptism functions as a seal of God's gospel promise that we hear in the word as it assures us that God's gospel promise is not a phony promise. It's valid. It's worthy of our trust. It's reliable. Just as that road sign bears that seal of the city's you know, official insignia, which tells us that we can trust it. It's giving us reliable information. So baptism is a sign and a seal of 
of the gospel, just as that road sign is a sign and a seal of entrance into the city. Now also, notice this language in question and answer 69, which is very significant. We read, uh, or we see this language of, of as, sur- as surely and so certainly. As surely and so certainly. This is language that comes from, from Calvin and, and particularly his institutes. But this is the language of assurance. What the catechism is saying is that just as, as surely as we can experience the physical waters of baptism, ordinary waters, just as we can look upon and witness a baptism with our very own eyes, so certainly we can be assured of of this invisible reality that we have been washed clean from our sins. The physical is meant to assure us of the invisible. Or you could say the visible is meant to assure us of the invisible. As surely, so certainly. Think of your wedding ring. Your wedding ring is doing a similar, a, sim- a similar thing. You look at your wedding ring and you should be reminded of this relationship, the vows that you made, the commitments that you have before God to your spouse. It's a physical uh, item that reminds you of a broader reality. This is, this is how, how baptism functions as a sign and a seal. It, it points us to this invisible reality of the washing of away of sins that we receive when we embrace the gospel by faith. So in in the context of an infant baptism, when a baby is baptized, what's happening is that this this child is receiving the sign and seal of, of the gospel promise. What we are acknowledging is that this child has the privilege of being raised in a covenant community in which they are hearing the gospel. This separates them quite radically from a child that's born and raised in a pagan home because they don't have the privilege of hearing the gospel. Or if you think about it in terms of that illustration, what we're acknowledging in an an infant baptism is that this child not only will be told the directions to the city, but will be constantly pointed back to that road sign that directs them to the city. But that child still needs to respond by faith and enter the city themselves, meaning they need to embrace the gospel by faith. The waters of baptism aren't doing anything. Just as a road sign is not the city itself. It's a sign and seal of the reality. And so the waters of baptism are not the waters of regeneration in itself. This is where we would uh, differ from the Roman Catholic Church. But they're a sign and seal of that reality of the gospel. And thus we're acknowledging the, the blessing it is for children to be born within the covenant and that they will be catechized in the Christian faith and, and taught the gospel that they will be um, urged to respond to. Now, if question answer 69 is all about examining the sign, that baptism is a sign and seal of this gospel promise and as such is meant to assure us, question answer 70 then is, is essentially an examination of the city. Question answer 69 is an examination of the sign of baptism. Question answer 70 is an examination of the thing signified. What does baptism point to? And specifically, question and answer 70 says baptism points to Christ's blood and Christ's spirit. Those are the two things chiefly that, that baptism points to. Or you could put it another way. 
Baptism points to our justification as well as our sanctification. So baptism reminds and assures us specifically of, of, of Christ's blood. Now, how, how, does Christ, how does baptism remind and assure us of Christ's blood? How would you answer that question? There's baptism on the cross. Good, yes. I've alluded to that before, that water is a symbol of judgment throughout Scripture. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was baptized, meaning he bore God's wrath for our sins. This is why 1 John 2, 2 refers to Christ's death on the cross as a propitiation. Propitiation refers to a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So the waters of baptism should remind us that Jesus took the plunge into the, the waters of God's wrath. In fact, I once heard a theologian put it this way, which I think is a very, a very catchy way to, to think about this. Uh, we are baptized into Jesus' name because Jesus was baptized into our name. So we were baptized, we are baptized into Jesus' name because Jesus was baptized into our name. Now, when was Jesus baptized into our name? Waters of Jordan. But what does that point to? The cross. On the cross, Jesus took the baptism that we deserved, meaning God's judgment. He was baptized into our name in the sense that he took upon himself our sins and bore God's curse that our sins have deserved. So, yeah, so wrath, water, judgment. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's definitely one thing that we should be reminded of when we witness uh, the waters of baptism. How else, what, what, is there any further relationship between the waters of baptism and the blood of Christ? The catechism points to this idea of washing, just as, as water washes our body clean, so too the blood of Christ washes away our sins. We heard that this morning in Isaiah 1.18, our declaration of pardon, that though our sins be like scarlet, they are now white as snow. This metaphor that's used in scripture to refer to how, how the stain of sin that's washed away through the blood of Christ as we are purified uh, through his sacrifice. At the end of the day, baptism then should remind us that, that Christ's blood is what justifies us. Christ's blood is what saves us. Again, it's not baptism. The waters of baptism don't cleanse us. The waters of baptism don't justify us. Christ's blood justifies us. Well, baptism also points to Christ's spirit. Christ's spirit. And particularly, this, this idea of renewal and regeneration. So, when we witness the waters of baptism, it should remind us that God is the one who is the author, not only of our regeneration, but also of our sanctification. When Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Paul's saying that God is the author of our sanctification. And therefore, the waters of baptism should remind us that we don't sanctify ourselves. God is the one who will continue to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, uh, continue to cause us to reflect his holy character. Again, notice here that baptism doesn't sanctify us. Baptism doesn't justify us. Christ's blood is what justifies us. Christ's spirit is what sanctifies us. 
And we see this, this connection between Christ's spirit and the waters of baptism in Titus chapter 3, verses uh, 5 and 6, which is quoted in question answer 71. Paul says this, he says that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now listen to this, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he speaks about this washing of regeneration. The washing of of baptism points to the Spirit's work of regeneration. There's a close identity between a sign and a thing signified, but there is a distinction between the two. We don't want to collapse them together. So the waters of baptism don't create these, these realities by their very working, but they point to the reality of Christ's blood and Christ's spirit, which alone is what justifies us and sanctifies us. And therefore, when you recall your baptism, what you are recalling is the fact that Christ, through his blood, justifies you. That Christ, through his spirit, is the one who continues to sanctify you. That's what you are remembering. That you are identified as a member of Christ. And thus are the recipient of these gracious and good promises. Now, question answer 71 essentially is giving us the exegetical foundation for the question answer 69 and 70. If you'll notice that Question answer 71 first quotes Matthew 28, which is um, the foundation for question answer 69, and particularly that phrase that Christ instituted this outward washing with water. And then you'll notice that that last sentence is the foundation for question answer 70. It quotes Titus 3, 5, and 6, the washing of regeneration, which is the foundation for how how uh, Christ's spirit is the one who, who sanctifies us, and then the washing away of sins, which alludes to Acts chapter 22, verse 16, which was uh, right after Paul's conversion when Ananias told him to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. There Ananias is making this close connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. So again, when we think about baptism, we should think of it as, as, uh, as that road sign. Right? It's a sign and a seal. It's indicating uh, how many miles we have to go to that city. It, it bears that seal, that official seal, and it calls us to respond by faith. Respond by faith and actually enter the city ourselves, which is embracing the gospel message. Now, next week, we're going to continue to to look at this relationship between the sign and the thing signified in question and answer 72 and 73. And then we'll finish our conclusion of baptism by uh, considering the question and answer that states, why should infants be baptized? And the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of, of infant baptism, I think, I think is the best and most concise explanation for why we give this sign and seal of God's gospel promise to children of believers.